Making software on a global scale is really hard. You have to know what each person is trying to do and how to tailor the experience to their specific needs. In today's chat with R.N. Bomek, we'll look at how IBM uses design thinking to do just that. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside of Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out more at NineLabs.com. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, welcome back to Design Driven, everybody. We are excited today to have Aaron Bomick with us. He is the VP of Design for the IBM Cloud. He's working on all kinds of cool stuff there at IBM. So, Aaron, how are you? Good. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity, Jay. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you can join us. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got to IBM and what you're working on there that is, that's exciting. Great. Um, I am a designer geek uh, by all accounts, uh, both from a schooling perspective. I did my master's in the field of human computer interaction and then got into corporate life as a designer. And in the field of design, fortunately, I got a chance to work on many different kinds of products that touch many different kinds of user base, all the way from very technical products around database administration, um, system monitoring, development, to very self-service, walk-up-and-use kind of products that folks like sales reps use. My early part of my career, early to mid, actually, part of my career has been at Oracle, Um, where I initially learned the tricks of the trade, grew up the ladder, managed teams, managed strategies, led teams, formed teams, et cetera, and eventually uh, was was leading a a pretty huge portfolio mission. Um, On from then, uh, we moved on to a little bit of a different uh, take at uh, the world of software into the world of cloud. And that's what drew me into IBM. IBM has a incredible history of innovation, um, all the way you know going back to folks like Elliot Noyes and um, um, other folks like Paul Rand, um, and and even more uh, contemporary, you know, even though it's in the eighties, folks like Richard Sapper, they've all designed great great products. But um, what IBM gave me is a promise to come in and introduce the world of cloud to our customers in a very different UX differentiated way. Um, essentially, the promise is to provide products that are not only great at technology, not only great at functionality, but also great user experiences. So that's what drew me into IBM. Um, I lead up a, a global design team across probably eight studios around the world, um, all tied to products tied to the hybrid cloud portfolio. Many different kinds of products, again, different user bases, all the way from machine learning products, data science, to development products of, of Java-based development, node-based development, to um, self-service usage of things like file sharing. So a gamut of products, uh, different choices of technology, different complexities, 
but IBM keeps it interesting and innovation is at the forefront. Yeah, I've seen a lot of interesting stuff coming out of IBM recently, and I've got a number of friends there. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process? Because you've got a very broad scope of the, both the services that you're uh, covering and the types of audiences that you're delivering those services to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, a little bit of a history tie into the process. Uh, the process took a little bit of time to sort of tweak and tune. But uh, our belief is that... Uh, the technology we use at work should be delightful, intuitive, and efficient as the technology we use in the rest of our lives. And to do that, we believe that design and designers will drive the next generation of reinvention. So to do this, we kind of realized that we needed to build a, a more sustainable culture of design, uh, of encouraging our people and giving them the ability to take a step back. It's not just about um, what can be built, but what should be built and also about how. Um, so in terms of that mission, the key to getting a process is also having a, a wider view. So we look, we look at the problem in three different sort of lenses, people, places, and practices. So people, um, which is the designer in this example, or the set of designers, we went out and actively hired the right kind of designers with a diverse set of perspectives, skills, crafts, and vision. And just to give you a kind of a ballpark number, we'll likely be rounding off around a 1,500 to an 1,800 um, designers for the whole of IBM. Wow, that's a huge team. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it sort of makes it the probably the single largest standalone design capacity in the history of design. Um, but we do it in a, in a more tactical way. Not only we hire from the right schools, and by the way, two-thirds of our hires or new hires are coming out of undergraduate and graduate degree programs. So we go and hire them, we bring them in, and we um, introduce them to this onboarding boot camp for roughly around you know, six weeks to three months. Where Is they this go the program through, in Austin? That's the program in Austin. That's okay. correct. And we have actually rolled out the program to be in other parts of the other global studios as well, just to scale. But um, folks go through this training program, um, working on real life problems and getting the hang of how to apply design thinking principles, design languages, how to work with business in the confines and constraints of real life problems. So by the time they're out of the boot camp, a pretty set, set of skills that we can put into practice. So that was the part one of the, of the lens. The second one was places. So, you know, we have around 20, 28 studios and counting in over 20 countries and six continents. Some are bigger than others. Austin is one of the, the big flagship one, for example. Some are specifically dedicated to external client-facing activities, while some are hybrids, where we, we have sort of marketing, communication at corporate level with product designers and offering managers and product managers, all housed in the same space. Um, so that's the places part of it. Um, and then the final part is the practices. This is where your question was about. Um, so if, if design is really the craft of expressing an intent or rendering an intent, then IBM design thinking is the way that our teams actually go about manifesting the intent together. And there are three elements to the design thinking practice at IBM. 
the the first one are principles. It's it's about framing the way we see problems. The second is a loop. We believe in a continuous journey that enables us to identify problems and envision possible outcomes throughout the user journey, back and forth, through iterations. And the third is keys. So aligning us on the clear intent and purpose. Who exactly are we targeting this particular product or outcome towards? How can we bring them into our design process as we work through the designs? And what is the purpose? How do we know we met the goal? So these are key sort of mindset uh, aspects of IBM design thinking. And that's what we generally tend to do across the board, across all the designers uh, globally. Yeah, so it sounds like um, to, to break that down, you're looking at what is the desired intent um, how do you intend to try to accomplish that? And then how do you measure it to see if you actually did accomplish it on the end? That's correct. That is correct. And half of the problem is to define the outcome and, and to identify the problem. That's what I've seen uh, based on experience in the past is as designers, we have this incredible ability to break down a problem and find solutions. But sometimes the problem we are targeting is not the right one to begin with. Right. So IBM Design Thinking Framework, we, we follow some of those um, framework principles to allow us to drive towards the problem first and then breaking it down and figuring out the outcome. So you, you mentioned that a lot of your new hires are coming straight out of school. So you've got a lot of work to kind of bring them up to the standard uh, or kind of the experience level that you might need to conduct this type of in-depth work. Um, so did you design that curriculum beforehand or is that kind of a work in progress? And then are you, uh, or I guess all, all the practices and the methodologies that you're using, is that all um, homegrown at IBM or are you adopting things from outside? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, first of all, um, every company has its own DNA, right? So we have to um, create a program that works within the confines of the culture and the company. Yeah, of course. Um, so design thinking in general is a well-established um, practice in the industry. But what we try to do is adopt that practice and make it specific to IBM and what works for IBM. Uh, the program as such was started right around the time I joined or maybe uh, six months or so before I joined. And it has gone through a, a number of iterations of fine tuning as we learned what works, what didn't work, uh, how designers were able to adopt it and manifest into regular practice. Uh, but it's been a work in progress. And even now, I, I think everything we do is in the spirit of a loop, which means we're going to learn from what we do. We're going to adapt and we're going to tweak. So that sounds like a very iterative process. Can you give us an idea of a time when you went through that process and the result surprised you or where you got something that uh, wasn't necessarily expected in the beginning? Yeah, sure. Um, there are uh, probably a lot of examples, but I'll, I'll try to uh, give one or two without going to the product definition. But we were working on a a monitoring product that's used by application developers to monitor how well their apps are being used, where are they getting stuck, and the usage and, 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 and such parameters. Uh, typically, when a product is ideated on, um, there are requirements that are flown in. 
uh, typically through product managers or offering managers as they're called in IBM. Um, and, and the problem is, is sort of wrapped around those set of requirements and you design for it. Um, the key to IBM design thinking practice is the concept of sponsor users. These are potential target personas that we are gonna be designing for. And these are real people with real needs be involved in their design cycles, all the way from vetting the problem, breaking down the problem as we ideate through the wireframes and, and more high fidelity uh, prototypes, the sponsor users help guide us and help us bind our perception of reality. So in this, in this monitoring example, we're going about a particular track and we believe that if we could solve the problem in a particular way, we would capture the market or that would be the end result. It turns out um, as we involved the sponsor users throughout the, the life cycle, the first thing we did was we tried to validate what we call as a, as a hill. A, a hill is almost like a mission statement um, that um, combines the who, the what, and the wow, right? So who is the user? What outcome are we trying to solve for the user? And what's, what's the big deal about it? And so we frame this list of hills and we walk them to the sponsor users. And it turns out that while the, while the hills were pretty decent and on the mark, the wow factors were completely off, right? So we would have ended up building a product that does its function, but there wasn't anything in the product that would be a hook for new users to come on board. Yeah. Just one example, and we did that through, you know, working with this sponsors along the journey. So it, we have something kind of similar to that that we use with with our clients, and we uh, we call it an effort to impact scoring. So essentially, we look at the effort it's going to take to build something, which might be equivalent to your hill. And then the impact that's going to make, which might be equivalent to your wow factor. So are, are you looking at things in kind of a more quantitative uh, uh, way to figure out what to work on and, and what type of impact it might have? Or is it still very qualitative? Honestly, it's, it's, it's pretty qualitative. Um, but we are making grounds to make it a little bit more quantitative. So as we talk about cloud softwares right now in the industry, most of the SaaS um, softwares in the consumer side is instrumented. So it's pretty easy to tell which features are being used a lot, which features aren't, how many users are coming into the product, how long they spend the time in, in the system and what tasks they perform, things like that. Mm -hmm. Historically in, in enterprise software, uh, that was a black hole. You know, we didn't really know that because most of the deployments were what we call as on-premise uh, within a firewall so you don't get the data. But with innovations um, nowadays in the field of cloud, we have started to get more of this instrumentation data. So while when we formulate the hill, there is a, a vetting process and validation process. Um, by the way, there is a, a quantifiable component of the hill. And sometimes the wall factor is the quantifiable quantifiable factor. For example, a hill could be that, um, you know, John, a, a sales rep, could install this software under two minutes, okay, right. uh, without, without reading documentation. 
So under two minutes without reading documentation, these are quantifiable. We can sure. do that, right? So it's a mix of both, but I would say just because of the maturity of the of the enterprise cloud software, it's it's taking a little bit of time to get most of the instrumentation data. Yeah, that makes sense because the, there's a long legacy of software that's installed on-premise and you're not going to get the information out of that. And typically businesses haven't been very driven by understanding how usage of that software can help grow their business. But that's changing, right? So now teams like yours are coming along and saying, well, if we can make it 20% more efficient to fill out that form, that saves you X millions of dollars over the year. Right. Absolutely. And in fact, there are um, other ways we've been handling these kind of problems historically. So, you know, one is getting the data from our production level system, which you said is, is kind of hard because an on-prem and uh, customers are reticent to share the data. But um, with the advent of new technologies where you can sort of mask the data and just, just um, sort of aggregate the data up is good enough. Also, we tend to do a lot of user research studies, um, both during the design cycle and the post-design cycle. So in the post-design cycle, we get to uh, measure things like task completion rates, um, uh, which, which essentially means how many users could complete a task successfully within a given time boundary, and um, collecting things like error rates, Mm -hmm. or uh, how many times did they have to call support? These are metrics we can collect through user research studies for a smaller sample size, agreed, but on production systems uh, that fairly mimic the realistic customer environments. And again, pulling those numbers and aggregating them up and sharing it with the customers is always an eye-opener because we can then do design A versus design B kind of comparisons, right? Easily and say, okay, well, it's not just a qualitative I, I like this better because the the visual appeal or the visual language of this design option is better than other, but it also has workflow impacts and productivity impacts. Doing design X will give will make you more productive because we found that users of of of, of your company, specifically your company, that follow along this personal lines would be able to do it without any training versus the other one which will require a little bit of a heads up uh, training and, and documentation. So it's, it's, it's easier to do that um, right now, as opposed to you know, two or three years later, but we have a lot of more work to do on that front because what I would like to see enterprise software go is be a little bit more predictive than reactive, right? So it should be able to sense the usage of your product and sort of optimally um, hide or, or disclose features and constructs to users as a user system. Because we need to progressively disclose um, uh, the right tasks at the right time to the right users so they become more productive. Historically, we could still do that by getting data, running the studies as I talked about, but that's being very, very reactive. Uh, hopefully at some point in time with AI and technologies like machine learning, we should be able to get into these predictive kind of um, uh, behaviors in our products. Yeah, I agree. I think that's um, a, a logical next step for software is to be much more adaptive to the user rather than just dumping every single potential feature it has on the interface at one time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Can you um, can you talk a little bit about a project where um, maybe the the business stakeholders 
um, were maybe apprehensive or dubious about the the potential outcome. And then after you going through some some human centered design practices and uh, really focusing on how the the product is used by those people that that had a surprising outcome or or had a business result that uh, was unexpected yeah again many stories in that front as well because it boils down to how much of market data was available when the problem was being framed um we have a whole bunch of products around um application developers and api development for example um and, uh, in, in this one particular case, we were trying to design this new software um, from scratch. Um, and it was targeting API developers. The idea would be for an API developer to be able to go there, um, get access to APIs, be, and be able to share the APIs with other folks, enforce um, security around them, and publish them. Um, and traditionally, uh, the, the, the business was uh, very much focused on let's, let's hone in specifically on developers equal to API developers, as in ones who are responsible for creating, maintaining, and publishing APIs. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we, as we went through the journey um, of, of both the design and the user research in parallel, we found out that the the concept of the persona of API developer is, is fairly undefined in that there are multiple personas involved in the same construct. And we needed to um, sort of scale up, right? Or rather expand the, the persona we're targeting. When we found that out, we changed some of our design constructs and design boundaries. And in fact, the shape of the product changed. And as we changed the shape of the product, we quickly found out that the conversion rates of people coming in to try out our new products dramatically changed, right? And that was a huge business impact. Now there's obviously a discussion between conversion versus you know, adoption longer term, and that's still to be played out. Uh, but the r- real business impact was through the process we went through, uh, the design team was able to convince the stakeholders that it's 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 probably good, relevant, and, and important for us to expand our persona for the product that we're targeting. So you expanded the persona beyond what you initially thought. Um, that seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. I would think you would want to have a little bit more precise persona. Yeah, that's true. But the the challenge uh, challenge is sometimes you know you have a few unknown unknowns. So you make an assumption that this particular product. Um, is targeted only towards this specific persona. But when you put it in a practice, you find that there are other personas who have an affinity towards their product. They start using it. They start expanding their their sort of forte. It's a little bit of, at one point of time, you had very unique roles of a a database administrator and a developer. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, a developer, a full-stack developer, can code, can do the database programming, and in some cases, manage their own database instances. So because the personal lines are blurring, we are learning uh, really, really fast. And especially in the cloud um, environments where the barrier to adoption is really low. It, it's been a, a, a really interesting experience. So our assumptions for personas we begin with may not hold by the time we release the product. 
Sure, because things move very, very quickly. And as you said, kind of the, the lines are blurring between what roles are, how we used to define those roles. And people have different skill sets that cross those boundaries and cross what you know are essentially organizational silos as well. So I guess it's becoming a bit more difficult to define how people fit distinctly into those personas. So is your approach to just broaden the persona or are you doing something where you're having multiple personas that kind of overlap each other Venn diagram style? Yeah, so it's it's a little bit of both. Um, first, we, we do want to uh, create role-based experiences, which means uh, for a given role, for the task that they perform, we create an experience or we define an experience that is integral to how they work. Now, that's a very purist model and we want to go there as long as we know exactly what the roles are and what are the tasks that they're targeting. But in this you know, blurry land of a particular persona might, might have multiple roles, what we're trying to create is a more of an adaptive experience. So you can start out um, by a, a core set of tasks in a particular product and then you scale out. You scale out by by letting the software progressively disclose key functions and tasks to you. So you can then expand your knowledge of the domain area beyond your core role. So we have to support role-based experiences. At the same time, we need to make sure architecturally behind the scenes, we um, we can expand our the definition of roles so we don't encounter any artificial constructs of what a role does. Sure. And so the same persona might uh, undertake different roles at different parts of the user journey. That's correct. That's very much correct. And it, it's, it's generally, um, you know, one of the debatable topics in design is what's the difference between a persona and a role. But um, at the end of the day, um, you, a person, performs a set of tasks in a given context, in a given environment, and the tasks may change because of many different reasons. Timing is one, um, uh, frequency is another one, importance is another one, uh, your goals could change. So as long as we keep an eye on persona from a um, getting to know the, the fears and the motivations and the goals of this user type, and then keeping an open idea about the role and the responsibilities they would perform helps us define the holistic sort of a a user mental model that we can then target our products against. Yeah, that makes so much sense because if you if you simplify it and you think about roles within a household. So I'm thinking about my home, right? You know, I've got certain roles and I've got certain things that uh, that I need to accomplish, tasks, you know, whether it be cooking dinner or taking out the trash or something simple like that. Um, and then different people in the household have um, sometimes the same roles, sometimes it's my wife that cooks dinner, but we have vastly different personas. And so it sounds like you're kind of creating a matrix about um, different personas performing different roles or tasks um, at different times and how that impacts the experience that they should have for that particular instance. That's correct. Uh, even in your home example, uh, uh, you do have a concrete set of tasks that you always do. And in some cases, you cover a few other tasks. So what um, I like to believe in is to do the AT20 rule. So we optimize the product experience for your core tasks, but then let you get to the other tasks as needed. And if we do a, a, a great job in, um, in 
adopting machine learning models into our products, we will soon know um, and we'll understand the pattern of your work. So then we can make the product more and more simplistic in that we only show you the stuff you care about. And for the corner cases where you may need to do a few other tasks, you can get there through progressive disclosure or through detail on demand or we have many other strategies. But it's all about simplicity. The problem with enterprise software is it's an inherently complex space. It's complex because the technology behind it is, is fairly complex. You've got new technologies, you've got um, a mix of the new and the old, you've got integrations, you've got different roles, um, and, and they're used in the enterprise context. So they're using your product to make a living, right? Versus uh, on the consumer side, it may not be as much for making a living. So there is an additional stress point on enterprise software. And one way of, of making sure that the software works for you is if the software gets to know you a little bit more. So I see a lot of promise in the field of artificial and augmented intelligence, as well as machine learning, which are you know kind of linked to each other in a lot of different ways to help us build better, predictive, uh, more holistic experiences. Yeah, that's super fascinating stuff. Um, I don't. I'm sure you've got several projects underway. Um, I'd love to hear about um, one that's kind of starting now, and and then have you back on the show at some point in the future and hear how um, how it actually came out to to work in the real world. Yeah, um, many such products. Again, um, if I could just just call out a, a few examples. Um, so, in most of our products, um, again, tied to uh, very much uh, uh, productive or enterprise users, uh, they are trying to perform their job. And um, in, in the new workforce that we see, uh, the millennials who are going to be joining corporate world, uh, although soon to be graduates, they're not used to reading documentation. They want to walk up and use. They want to learn the domain as they work. Um, And we have a few projects underway um, that are uh, trying to not only um, use machine learning, but depending on the, um, the type of usage of the product, we will start embedding experts, uh, system-driven experts into the products. So the expert would be almost a, a virtual agent of sorts. An agent is a negative term, but maybe a virtual um, uh, team member, if I can call it that, who is personalized to you, who you can go to to ask a question about the domain, about the task, about bringing in different sets of information externally outside the, the concept of IBM to you. So we can do that through AI modeling, uh, specifically to get to know the, the, the type of content that you typically look for and your behavioral patterns and how you're using the system. So if you're able to keep the user using the product, they get more out of the product. From a business standpoint, you know, we have more user adoption that brings more revenue. But more importantly, from a user satisfaction perspective, if we have those advisors or agents embedded, it makes their life a lot simpler. So and that's just one example. Um, there are tons of other examples. Sure. 
Sure. And it sounds it's kind of getting into an area which I find super fascinating, which is um, the parallels between building products that help customers accomplish tasks and help actually people get things done and be more productive in their lives and the kind of more philosophical nature of interpersonal relationships between humans. So if, if two people are forming a friendship or a romance, um, there's a number of steps that they have to go through as they strengthen that bond. And so I'm, I'm really curious and kind of fascinated to get your thoughts around that, um, that idea of how can we learn from the way we build personal relationships and apply that to how we build products that help people accomplish things. Yeah, that's a great question, Jay. Um, I think if there's, if there's one uh, missing uh, focus in enterprise software, it is collaboration. It's, it's, it's heavily um, undermined uh, and almost treated as a siloed uh, solution that happens on the side. Um, but like you said, two individuals forming relationships. Enterprise users... The users in general, when they're using the system, they're not just working within themselves. They work with their team members. They work with folks who are like stakeholders. Um, they work with domain experts. But all of the information is somehow not tied to the system and, and somehow has to be sort of taken offline. Um, in an ideal world, as we develop trust in human relationships, that's by spending more time with each other. That's number one, right? So how do we how do we build a system um, that allows user to user collaboration embedded within the system within the environment that's self beneficial? So it's not just you spending time with each other. It's also what are you giving and what you're getting um, to develop trust, um, at least on the credibility side. If you get a recommendation from a system and you try the recommendation and it works, that's a great win. That's how you start developing trust. And trust is key to a relationship. And I think if we, if we leverage machine learning to provide the right recommendations to the user at the right time and, and sort of provide a hook for the user to adopt it, they will trust the system more. And when they trust the system more, inherently, they will be more open to trying out new stuff. And hence, they will also be more productive. So trust is a critical part. And I think we can... Um, enhance the trusting relationship between man and the machine uh, with embedded intelligence and, and predictive modeling and recommendations. Yep. No, I think that's a really fascinating direction for software development and product development to go in, in general. Um, and I'm glad to hear that, um, that someone out there is kind of thinking the same way. So um, I want to be respectful of your time, and you know we're, we're, we've had a great conversation here. So, and just kind of wrapping up, um, what um, what are your closing thoughts about people who are pursuing how to build great products, and um, how should they go about doing that? What philosophies should they should they adopt, or books should they read? What What do you recommend? Books. Well, I'll start off by saying for anyone getting into the field of design. Um, they should read the Don Norman book, Design for Everyday Things, right? That's just mm -hmm. a basic. Um, but it's, it's more than books. It's really a mindset. Um, for you to get into design, um, you need to fall in love a little bit with the problem and not necessarily the solution. Um, and 
if you have the mindset of continuously challenging, being curious of, um, of trying out new technologies and pushing boundaries and asking questions of what if, then you can be a great designer. Designer inherently also is also about empathy, right? Um, to have empathy is, um, is key to not only being a great designer, but also key to making sure that a product you design meets the needs of your users. So uh, can you develop empathy as an individual? You probably can, you'll go it over time. And it's, it's somewhat of a skill as well. Um, some are more inherent, but I would say empathy, um, skill building is the other part. So if you're getting into the field of design, and this is, by the way, a great time to be a designer. We can't, this is the best time ever. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and um, and for, you, for you as a designer to make an impact, learn a little bit about the business. It's not just about the product. It's about what the product does and how it brings revenue to the company you're coming in for. Now, I'm talking in the context of enterprise software, uh, but it's not about being purist and designing for the sake of design. It's designing for solving a human problem. Right? So if you have the right mindset, you have empathy, you can um, break down uh, bigger complex challenges into small meaningful uh, solutions, then this is the field for you. Yep. Fantastic advice. Well, thanks again for being on the show today. If somebody wants to reach out to you and uh, learn a little bit more about what you're working on or just chat with you in general, what's the best way to get in touch? Uh, best way would be through Twitter um, at Aaron Bomick. Fantastic. And we'll link that up in the show notes too. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Um, as I said, I'd like to get you back on at some point and hear about how some of the products you're working on now have actually uh, manifested themselves in the real world. So I look forward to doing that sometime soon. Awesome. It'll be an exciting opportunity again. All right. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.